Well, hello and welcome to Cornwall Church. Whether you are in the room in Bellingham, online, in Skagit, it is always great to be together as the body of Christ. And let me just say, it is always an honor to get to be here and share some thoughts with you. My name is Scott. I'm the campus pastor at our Skagit campus in Mount Vernon. And I hope that you had a great Christmas. Now, here's the thing. I know that you may not have. I've talked to some of you and some Christmases were rough. And my hope is that whether you had a really hard Christmas or a really merry Christmas, that there were moments where God's joy was um, made known to you, where you experienced his closeness. For me, um, there's a lot that I appreciate about the Christmas season from the traditions of lights and trees and decorations and baked goods and eating baked goods and more baked goods and eating more baked goods. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else feeling that? And it's just so good. And the time that we have as a family, it somehow feels um, more special, even though for our family, it wasn't as much time together as I would have hoped but it's just special. But the thing is, is apart from celebrating the birth of a Messiah, the, the season is void of greater meaning. It's the specialness is taken out of it for me. Um, I find the birth narrative, the story of Jesus' birth, absolutely um, stunning year after year after year. And every year we read Luke 2.10, it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is good news of great joy for everyone. This is all-inclusive. This is incredible. Not only does Luke explicitly name that, but he demonstrates that in, in who gets to spend time, who gets to be in the very presence of Jesus. When Jesus is still in the womb, Elizabeth is there. When Jesus is born, the shepherds are there. Soon after that, Simeon and Anna get to be in the presence of Jesus. Eventually, the Magi. And you're like, okay, why the list of people? Well, they're different people representing different groups of people, men and women, Jew of upright status and lower status, and Gentiles. God is good news of great joy for all the people. And this is a theme that repeats itself throughout the book of Luke. But what's the good news? Well, Luke proclaims the good news even before 2.10. He says in verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, verse 78 and 79 in the NASB translation, because of the tender mercy of our God. Isn't that good? Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. The light of the world will visit us for a time, but not forever. Why is he going to visit us? To shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to bring light, to bring hope, to bring love, to bring peace that is unknown apart from him, to bring these things into a dark world that desperately need him, and to guide our feet into the way of peace into the way of peace. What this means is when we have a relationship with God, when we live the way God has created us to, we will experience a peace that you cannot know in any other way. There is a joy. There is a, a sense of life coming to life when we live according to the way that God created us to live. And central to that is to love God, um, but central to that is also the great commission. As um, Matthew 28 says, Jesus' last words, and then Luke reiterates this in Luke chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That as we live according to the way that God has called us to live, that we will find peace. Life comes to life. And today we find ourselves on the last day of 2023, which that means that many of you have already started looking back on 2023 and and thought about what went well, what didn't go well, and considering how do I live different in 2024. And for our time together this morning, I want to invite us to consider, yes, we should do that, but may we do that asking ourselves, how did we do it living into the way of peace? And how can we do that to a greater degree in the year ahead? To say that differently, how did we do it living for Jesus in the past year? For those of us who know Jesus and love Jesus, how did we do living for him? And by the way, that's not an invitation just to beat yourself up. That's not what I'm suggesting, just to be clear. What did you do well? In what areas could you grow? In what areas do you want to grow in the year ahead? Now, that's very vague, and that may lead to not a whole lot of insight, because it's so vague. So for the duration of our time together, I want to go through the book of Acts, pretty much from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to talk about eight different interactions and things that we can learn. Now, the question is, why Acts? Well, Luke, the gospel of Luke is written by Luke. Acts is written by Luke. And together, they're like two books that complete one another. Where Luke ends, the book of Acts begins. At the end of Luke, Jesus ascends into heaven. The beginning of Acts, Luke is, or Jesus ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit falls. Um, in the beginning of Luke, it records the birth narrative of the Messiah. The beginning of Acts, it's the birth narrative of the church. And as you read Acts, it is absolutely an exhilarating, life-giving, um, exciting read. Why? Because people who know Jesus are living differently and the kingdom of God is blowing up. It is moving. It is powerful. It is inspiring. It is exciting. And so we're going to look at eight different interactions, as I mentioned. And my hope is, is that as we do this, we will have a different filter to look at the past year and the year ahead, and that we would be able to say, Lord, show me one or two ways that you want me to grow in my relationship with you. To be clear, this morning I am going to be outward focused in terms of how we live. What I know is our relationship with God starts inwardly, but we are looking this morning specifically at outward. How are we living our lives in a way that can affect and impact others? All right. So here we go, Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, Um, we see Peter teach his first sermon, 3,000 people come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and are baptized. I mean, that is astonishing and amazing, and I can only imagine how cool it would have been to be there. Right after that, on the heels, we read about uh, uh, the church, the early church. What does it look like for the early church when they gather? It's only five, six verses. It's from 40, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And what we see is they gather together daily. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They take communion and they pray together. Absolutely stunning. But what the, it says next in verse 44 and 45 like takes it to the next level. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. 
as she had need. What we see is that they choose interdependence instead of independence. What we see is that they choose interdependence instead of independence. Can you imagine how difficult this is? Somebody in our community has a need, and we know that we have things that we could sell and help provide for that need if it's a financial need. For me, it'd be like my mountain bike. That would be hard because I love mountain biking. But what if somebody needed money that I'd be able to provide for them as a result of selling my mountain? That's what happened. Or flipping it, like giving could be challenging for some of us, but receiving would be challenging as well. I mean, imagine that one of my children needed a medical procedure and it was $15,000, $15,000 that I don't have. And I shared that need and I asked the community to be praying with me and for me that God would provide. And somebody says, God will provide. I'm going to sell my car, and I'm going to give you $15,000. Okay, well, how are you going to get to work? God gave me two legs. (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be like to receive? And yet that is what we see in Acts chapter 2, this radical independence, the church depending on one another to be made whole. Now, in our fiercely independent culture, this is incredibly challenging because We want to do things on our own. But let me just point this out. To acknowledge our need for one another, to choose interdependence, is simply acknowledging what we all already know about ourselves, that we are not enough on our own. We are not enough on our own. We know that. Now, here's the thing. We are created in the image of God, not to be the body of Christ alone, but to be a part of of the body of Christ, which means that we're acknowledging that God created us with gifts and with limitations, and that we need to depend on one another in the body of Christ. We need to be interdependent, and that's what we see. Now, interdependence is, is really scary. Why? Well, to meet someone else's need requires that they let their need be known, which means vulnerability is required, humility is required, and our fear is that humility leads to humiliation. That as we make our need known, as we let others in on our life, that we may be shamed or guilted, judged, seen as less than. This is a risk. It is absolutely a risk. It is scary, and yet we see that the early church early church chose interdependence. When we acknowledge, when we are willing to acknowledge our limitations and invite others to play a role that they are gifted for, the body of Christ functions as the body of Christ. God is honored and the kingdom moves forward in a more powerful way, especially when we choose to embrace the unknown instead of clinging to the known when we choose to embrace the unknown instead of clinging to the known. In Acts chapter 8, we read of an interaction between two men. Uh, Philip is one of them, and the other is a man who is from Ethiopia. He's the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia, and he travels a long way via chariot to get to Jerusalem to go to a worship service. He does, and he is on his way home, the long, dusty journey home. Imagine that commute. Hello. Um, And on the way, he's on the way, God shows up and speaks to Philip through the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, 29 and 30 say this. 
The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot, stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? I love this. This man is in his chariot. He's heading home. God says to Philip, go up next to it. In this moment, Philip has a choice. In this moment, Philip gets to decide, will I embrace the unknown or will I cling to the known? The unknown is how will this man respond to me? What will he do? What will he say? Will he think I'm a creeper? (laughs) Will he be like, yo, get up off me? Or will he welcome me? I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know what happens next in this story. But Philip chooses to trust God. And so he runs up next to the chariot. And as he's jogging along, he hears this man reading Isaiah. And he says, do you understand what you are reading? And the man says, no, how could I? Anybody been there? You're reading scripture and you're like, huh? Okay, it looks like I'm the only one in this entire room in Bellingham. Um, I'm not sure you're all telling the truth this morning. So Philip uses this. This is the opportunity. He makes himself available. He steps into the unknown, and then he, as a result, he is able to explain the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to this man. This man receives Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he's like, I want to be baptized right now. And Philip's like, uh, there's a shortage of water. I don't see. They keep going, and there's what I imagine, this like funky, nasty little puddle that's just deep enough to get baptized in it, and this man's like, boom, let's do it. And he gets baptized. Imagine what that was like for Philip. If you had been there, what would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? What would you be experiencing? It would provoke awe in me. Like, Lord, you are so good. You invited me simply to walk alongside this chariot. I asked a simple question and you flung the door wide open and now I have a new brother in Christ. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But to experience that moment requires that we willingly embrace the unknown. That we willingly embrace the unknown. Think about it this way. Have you ever heard someone say, yeah, God nudged me to do something and I I was thinking about it and then I got really scared because I I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't know the outcome. And man, I'm so glad I played it safe. Never have I heard that. Instead, what, the, what follows is, I so regret not choosing to trust God because something amazing could have happened. I've been there. I've missed those moments. I've experienced that. And fortunately, I've also been on the other side where I've chosen to embrace the unknown and God shows up and works in an amazing way where you are just in awe of his goodness. Now, to embrace the unknown is a theme that is embraced again and again. It's demonstrated again and again through the book of Acts, um, following Jesus as he prompts us to step into the unknown. Now, this makes perfect sense. God wants to move his kingdom forward into areas that we cannot see. He wants us to grow in our understanding of him, in our intimacy with him, in our relationship with him, and he wants to advance his kingdom. He wants to create inroads to people who do not yet know him. All of that is the unknown to you and me. So if God's kingdom is to remain stagnant, we can stay comfortable. God's kingdom is not intended to be stagnant. It's, continue, it's intended to continue to advance, that more and more would come to know his joy, his goodness, his love, his forgiveness, his grace. 
that means that we need to continue to embrace the unknown because God will always lead us into the unknown. But here's the best part. We can also acknowledge that what is unknown to us is not unknown to God. What is unknown to us is known to God. But to do this requires his followers to choose faithful obedience instead of fearful resistance. To choose faithful obedience instead of fearful resistance. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul. Saul is a man who is zealous for God and he has taken it upon himself to persecute the Christian church in all ways possible. So he, he beats or, or supervises beatings. He puts people in prison and even uh, people are killed. Um, Stephen being the first martyr for the church in Acts chapter 7. Saul wants to exterminate all believers. But God's grace. God says, I see this man and he is going to be a force for me. God graciously pursues Saul. He's on the road to Damascus and, and a bright light, a radiant light so bright that it blinds him, shows up and God speaks to him. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, go to the city ahead of you, and there will be a man who will tell you what's next. While all this is going on, God shows up through the Holy Spirit to a man named Ananias, a devoted follower of Jesus. And he was like, Ananias, there, Saul is coming to you, and you need to go to him and pray for him. And Saul's like, say what? <laughs> like, I know Saul. I've heard about this man. I do not want to be within like 100 miles of him. Okay, what does the Bible actually say and says Scott's response? Verses 13 to 15 say this. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports of this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation point, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Despite his fear, Ananias faithfully obeys God. Despite his fear, despite not being able to see in Saul what God could see in Saul, that he couldn't see how this story would unfold. He certainly couldn't see that Paul, Saul would become Paul, and Paul would then write most of the New Testament. He couldn't see that, but in faith, he chose to trust God. And he went, and he found Saul, and he prayed for him, and something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes. Saul is baptized after receiving Christ as his Lord and Savior. He's re-energized, and he begins to share the gospel. And the Mediterranean region will never be the same as a result. One of the greatest evangelists in history. That started with a man named Ananias that God said, go. And he did. He faithfully obeyed. He faithfully obeyed. Now, Saul, Paul, is a prominent figure throughout um, Acts and the New Testament. But God doesn't only move through prominent figures. He moves through a woman who I believe there's only a few verses written about her. Her name is Tabitha in the second half of Acts. And what we can learn from one sentence about Tabitha is so important for us. As we review 2023, as we look to 2024, 
we have to be able to see that, that she chose empathy instead of indifference. She chose empathy instead of indifference. Empathy sees. Empathy listens. Empathy loves. Indifference is blind to the hurts and the needs all around us, leading us to be distant. Tabitha exemplifies empathy. In Acts 9, verse 36, it says this, In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, that's unfortunate, who was always doing good and helping the poor. Who was always doing good and helping the poor. Out of her heart, out of what God has done in her, she was always looking for opportunities to do good to those around her, to help the poor. In this day, there was no internet, which meant helping the poor was very much eye to eye. It was being with, it was listening to, it was sharing with, it was meeting needs that she was faithfully faithfully moved to help the poor. James 1.27 says this, pure religion, true religion is this, caring for orphans and widows. Is it only orphans and widows? No, it's anyone and everyone that is the outcast, the shunned, the looked down on in society and culture. Jesus says in, in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 25.40, whatever you've done to the least of these brothers of mine, this, these sisters of mine, you have done unto me. Central to the heart of God is to care for the poor, to care for the downcast, to care for those who are hurting. If we want to grow in empathy, we must increase proximity. If we want to grow in empathy, we must increase proximity. Let me tell you a short story that illustrates this. Years ago, I went to L.A. with a team of high school students from this church. And one of the days, our focus was to, in downtown L.A., to meet someone that didn't look like us and to just get to know them a little bit, to hear their story. And I had probably four or five different students with me. And, and so together, we decided, really they decided, who we were going to talk to. We ended up talking to a man named Tony. He appeared to be a homeless man. And at first, you could tell there was a little bit of apprehension, a little bit of distance, a little bit of like, uh, I don't know this man. I don't, you know. And then as we heard his story, as we listened to Tony, the distance disappeared and empathy was born. It was absolutely amazing to see this transformation take place in 10 to 15 minutes. Following that, we had a lunch break, and every day we were given a little stipend for lunch for our team, and one of the guys on our team said, hey, Scott, is it okay if, if I just don't eat so that I can use my portion of our lunch and buy it and give it to someone on the street? I said, I'm sorry, man, that, that's just too Jesus-like. You can't do that. I was like, of course, of course. Guess what happened? He inspired every single person on our team to do the same. And as a team, we fasted from our lunch so that others could have lunch. Proximity leads to empathy. If we want to grow in empathy, we must grow in proximity. Now, because we struggle to see all people the way Jesus did, if we want to choose empathy, we must learn from the example of Peter in Acts chapter 10 and choose to be teachable instead of hard-hearted. And choose to be teachable instead of hard-hearted. Have you ever had a dream that you wake up and you're like, 
what? <laughs> okay, great, it's me again. I'm just all alone on a stage and nobody's identifying with me. Okay, so I've had these dreams, oddly enough, and I wake up and I'm trying to make sense of it and it makes no sense. Peter has one of these, Acts chapter 10. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house near the water. He goes up onto the roof to pray and in this prayer, um, he has a vision. This vision involves a sheet that's lowered from heaven. On the sheet, there's these animals and, and Peter is hungry. And in that moment, God says, get up, kill and eat. And Peter says, surely, surely not, Lord, because there's unclean animals on this meat or on this sheet according to the dietary laws of the Torah. He's like, surely not. And Peter wakes up and he's like, what? Like, Lord, what are you saying? What, what is this about? Now, not too long after that, God speaks to a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion some, some uh, distance away. And he says, hey, Peter's over here. Send a couple guys to go get Peter and bring him back to your house. And so he does that. And then God shows up again to Peter and gives him another vision. And, and he says, hey, there's two men coming with you. It's okay to go with them. Go with them. And so I think Peter is still trying to make sense of this vision as he's, he's journeying with these men to Cornelius' house. And then it all comes together for him. It all comes together for him. In Acts chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, he says this, talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Good news of great joy for all the people. Let's keep in mind that Peter journeyed with Jesus for his three years of ministry and Peter continued to grow and continued to grow in his understanding of who God is and the life God called him to. But Peter in this moment remains teachable. He remains open to God's instruction, God's correction, even when it conflicts with things that he understood previously. There's a man named Francis Chan who said something that I think is really, really great. Whenever I read the Bible and come across something I disagree with, I assume I'm wrong. Right? That's a teachable spirit. Every time I read the Bible and I come across something I disagree with, I assume I am wrong. In this passage, we see that Peter's understanding would have limited who he would share the gospel with, who he would love, but Peter is teachable, and so he allows God to grow his understanding in that God wants to reach all people with his love. He wants all people to come to know him as his Lord and Savior and to experience the life the joy, the peace that comes from walking in his ways. What is required to do this is to choose God's kingdom instead of my kingdom. It's to choose God's kingdom instead of my kingdom. 
In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul and Silas are imprisoned, and they had been beaten. They're in shackles. They're in prison, and, um, and they're doing what you do when you're in prison. They're singing hymns, and they're praying, and there is a guard that is um, assigned to them to make sure that they don't escape, and in the middle of the night, at midnight, scripture says, an earthquake of great magnitude hits. All the prison doors go open. All the shackles fall off the prisoners, and what what the guard knows is if they escape, I am going to be held accountable for my failure of keeping them in prison. And what that meant was that they would be killed. They would be executed. So the guard is about to uh, take his own life until Paul demonstrates that they are all about God's kingdom and not theirs. In verses 18 to 30, it says this, but Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He heard them worshiping God despite just being beaten, despite being in prison. He heard them praying. And in this moment when they could have said, this is the moment, God has set us free, we are out. They had clarity from the Spirit. No, 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 sit tight and shout to the guard that we are still here. Why? Because this man's salvation is more important than your freedom. That's going to come, but not yet. What's amazing he comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. He takes Paul and Silas home. He meets, or they meet his wife and children, and his whole household comes to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's pretty amazing to think that if they had been my kingdom, their kingdom focused, this man might not have met Jesus. His family might not have met Jesus. His wife would no longer have a husband, and the children would no longer have a father. When we are faithful to God, when we are all about God's kingdom, God moves in more ways than we will ever know. Is it comfortable? No. Is it easy? No. But his kingdom will advance when we are about that. Now, eventually, Paul is freed from prison, and he travels to Athens. And as he's walking around Athens... He sees idols all over the place, and so he is very concerned. He is very bothered by this because he knows that these gods are not real. And so he starts talking about the gospel. He starts sharing the gospel with people in the marketplace, in the synagogue. And eventually word spreads, and more and more people are like, we want to hear about you. We are not sure we agree with you. We're not sure about your thinking. He ends up before Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and eventually he ends up at the Areopagus. And at the Areopagus, this is where the council meets that is the ruling body for judicial and legislative matters in Athens, including oversight of religion and education. And there he shares the gospel. And what I love is that we can learn from Paul that if we're going to follow his example, if we're going to live in accordance to the way of Jesus to follow him, we need to choose to share instead of shrink to share instead of shrink. In Acts chapter 17, verse 22 and 23, we read this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Paul steps in to moment after moment after moment after moment to share rather than shrink. And in this moment, he is incredibly culturally aware. And he sees where God opened the door. God opened the door and that there is an unknown God. And Paul's like, boom. I'm not going to condemn outright all these. I'm not going to start by condemning all these other gods or idol worship. I'm going to lean in right here. You are a religious people. Let me tell you about this unknown God, knowing that if they come to believe in Jesus, it will radically change the way they view everything else in their life. Paul chooses to share. He seizes the moment. Let me just point out something that hopefully you already fully grasp and understand. To share does not require a stage like this. To share doesn't mean bright lights and cameras and hundreds of people in a room. To share, for many of us, simply means an openness and a willingness to share with a barista, a waitress, a friend at school, a teacher, a student, a neighbor, a coworker, a family member. Wherever we go, that we would be open to God moving through the Holy Spirit in us to say, hey, Scott, there's an opportunity. Share. And to be sensitive to how we go about doing that, that we would be intelligent, that we would be culturally aware, that we would share graciously, love first, but that we would share rather than shrink. To seize the opportunity to share the good news is, again, reoccurring throughout the book of Acts. And so far, we've focused in on Peter and Paul and Silas, but there's another man named Apollos in Acts chapter 18 who is another communicator in in grander settings, larger settings. And this is what it says, Acts chapter 18, verse 24 through 26. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. We see that Aquila and Priscilla chose to build into others instead of tear them down. That they chose to build in to Apollos instead of tear him down. They could have said, you are messing this up. You're wrong. And torn him down in a public setting, in a public venue. Instead, they invite him gently to come over for dinner, to spend time with them. And then they help him um, round out his understanding, to increase his understanding so that he is even more equipped to share the good news. Isn't it awesome? This is the eighth example, and it ties us back, unintentionally on my part, it ties us back to the first, which is interdependence of the body of Christ. You see, I don't know what Aquila and Priscilla's gifts are. My guess is is that they weren't teachers. I don't know. I should probably read Acts more closely, and then I might have a better idea specific to them. But if their gifts are not teaching, 
how cool is it that while they're like, that's not my gift, I still have insight and understanding to be able to say, hey, Apollos, why don't you come over and let me help you grow. Let us help you develop in an understanding, to develop your understanding of the truth, of the gospel in its entirety. Let us help you. And they're building up another part of the body, and as a result, the body wins and the kingdom advances. Pretty amazing. When I was um, really new here, I had a couple people do this for me. Uh, Lisa Kaiser was the one who's responsible for me being here as a pastor now. And so if you're like, mm, I don't like Scott, you can talk to her. Um, but um, she helped me understand at a young age, like, what does it look like to communicate truth to middle schoolers at the time? And then years later, um, Pastor Bob asked me to speak at Refuge from this stage, and that was terrifying. Still kind of is. Um, but, and so Bob said, why don't we go, I'll take you out, we'll get some burgers and talk about what you're going to say. And he gently invested in me to develop me, to help me understand how to effectively communicate, to bring clarity to what I was going to say, to share a scripture that perhaps I didn't have. When we choose to build into others instead of tear them down, the gospel wins. The kingdom wins. The kingdom advances. If you love Jesus and you are called, if you love Jesus, you are called by God through Paul's words to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, to be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are called to be imitators of Jesus. Will we ever arrive completely? No. As far as I'm concerned, between now and the day I breathe my last, I've got a lot of growing to do. God wants me to grow, but growth is a choice. It's a choice that I have to make to be willing to partner with what God wants to do in me. So my encouragement to us, what would it look like to look at the last year through the lens of these eight points that we just talked about through the book of Acts and to say, these are some of the things that I did really well. Not perfectly, but I did well. As I look to the year ahead, here are some things that I think I want to do. Lord, how do you want me to grow in the year ahead? And can you imagine if every one of us in this room, online, in Skagit, if we all say, I am all in, I'm going to grow in at least one area this year. And here's the thing. Um, you know how um, New Year's resolutions fail within like the first 32 hours, <laughs> Right? The best part is that this resolution has nothing to do with our own strength. It has everything to do with the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We started here. We're coming back at the end. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. The Holy Spirit brings power in us. And when we simply say, Lord, I surrender to you. I trust you. I want you to grow me. He is going to move in a powerful way in us to help us grow in our understanding of him and live for him to a greater degree where we are reflecting his love, his grace, his mercy, his joy his forgiveness. We are going to move in a way that will help others better understand who Jesus is. And who knows how many people will enter the kingdom of God and become brothers and sisters as a result of us saying, yes, Lord, I want to grow. Will you grow? Will you choose to grow? Growth is a choice. 
for you and for me. I pretty much say this every time I teach. I am not talking down to you. I am talking to myself as I am talking to you. I need to grow. I want to grow in my ability to be empathetic. I want to grow in um, seizing the moments to share rather than shrink. I'm going to ask God to show me how else he wants me to grow in this year. But here's the thing. I believe that the Spirit of God wants us to grow. And if we simply say, Lord, would you move? Would you partner with me? If we say, Lord, I'm surrendering to you. I'm trusting you. I'm going to intentionally pursue growth even when it's hard. I'm going to intentionally invite other brothers or sisters into this journey with me to support me. Growth will happen. And I don't know about you. But I long to hear more acts-like stories of the kingdom of God breaking into men and women and girls' and boys' lives that they come to understand the peace that Luke names in chapter 1, verse 78, 79. That is inspiring. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. You are so, so good. And I thank you for the example of the early church in the book of Acts and for the men and the women who faithfully followed you. And because of that, more and more people came to know your goodness. They were not perfect. We are not perfect. Lord, would you give us the discipline to think back to this last year and consider how did we do living for you? And then to consider the year ahead, 2024, Lord, what do you want to do in us? And we would choose to boldly, faithfully, courageously step in to this moment and to say, Lord, do in us what only you can do so that you can bring your kingdom in good and beautiful ways in the coming year. I love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen.